During the winter months in cities across North America, thousands of crows gather into overnight roosts. Night after night, waves of these black birds fill the sky at dusk, streaming in from all directions. And you can't help but wonder why. My name is Craig Gibson, and I'm an avid bird photographer, writer, and conservationist with a passion for educating adults and children about the marvels and mysteries of God's winged creatures. Welcome to The Crow Patrol, a podcast exploring the amazing phenomenon of winter crow roosts and the lives of these incredibly smart, social, and family-centered birds. Greetings and thanks for joining us for the next episode of the Crow Patrol podcast. We are so pleased to welcome Brian Harrington. Brian is an emeritus biologist with Manomet, formerly known as the Manomet Bird Observatory, located in Plymouth, Mass., right near Cape Cod. He started working there in 1971 and has had a major focus on conservation issues around long, nonstop migrations of shorebirds, especially the red knot. He founded and managed the International Shorebird Survey, a project with over a thousand volunteers, counting shorebirds throughout North and South America. Since retirement, he has remained very active. Brian is a renowned expert in methods for counting large numbers of birds, and we'll learn a bit about his background and techniques for improving estimation abilities. Brian, welcome and thanks for being with us. Maybe we might start with just a bit of background on how you first became interested in birds. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> that goes back to childhood. Mm -hmm. it, it's not, a, not something I like to confess often, but uh, as a little urchin roaming the countryside with a BB gun, <laughs> I occasionally would shoot at a, at a songbird. And I, I always felt terrible if I hit one. And... Eventually, I put the gun down and uh, the BB gun down and picked up some binoculars of my grandmother's and started looking at them. So that was probably age 10 or 11. And uh, it's just been uphill and upwards ever since. A wonderful trajectory in life with birds. So. Amen. If you will, take a few minutes just to hit on the highlights You've had a long career at Manomet. If you would just kind of give us a uh, touch on the highlights of your time there. So many accomplishments and activities, but if you just, for the listeners, touch on the, the highlights of your time at Manomet. Well, I think in, in a nutshell, I'm very satisfied with how things came out with what I set out to do. And, and basically, early in my career at Manomet, I wanted to explore how shorebirds concentrated at particular places during migration. As a kid, I, I knew that before I had a driver's license, I had to persuade friends to drive me to places like Newburyport or, or Monomoy on Cape Cod, because that's where the shorebird action was. It wasn't, it wasn't on the shoreline of the beaches I could walk to from my home. And so you know, as I went on in my career and worked with, with seabirds on islands that 
serve the whole bird population of enormous area of ocean. I began to liken that to what shorebirds are doing during migration in concentrating at their stopover places. And so in my career, I basically uh, set out to try and show that that indeed was the case, not just some kid's imagination. Uh, and uh, went along three lines of work. One was starting the International Shorebird Survey, where basically asked birders all around the hemisphere uh, to count shorebirds on a regular schedule and then send their information back to us. This was pre-personal pre computers. Uh, <laughs> and so we would get everything on paper and key it into a big database and so forth. Um, the other line was that we worked on was looking at the food at, the, at, at major stopover places such as Plymouth Harbor, which was nearby, and, and trying to understand why what the shorebirds were feeding, when it was available, and why they picked particular places to really concentrate at. And so then the third, the third level was to take one species and try and really understand its whole migration system and where it concentrated. And so we picked the red knot for that. And that was on the advice of a wonderful guy named Joseph Hager, who had a, quite an influence on my career, a former state ornithologist with, with, for the state of Massachusetts, but also a mentor to many of us that were starting our careers at Manomet. So Mr. Hager basically said, well, I don't think you're really right about sherbirds being so heavily concentrated, but if you really want to explore that, the red knot is is the one to, to really look at. So he was so wise. And uh, <laughs> and so those were the three lines of principal lines of, of work during my career. Mm. Lo and behold, it turns out that they really do concentrate uh, during migration. We all now today know about Delaware Bay and, and the huge numbers of knots that show up there in the spring or in the fall, places like Monomoy and Plymouth, historically situate, uh, no longer, incidentally, at those two places, uh, but still today at Monomoy. Wow. Uh, Brian, tell us, uh, when you first zeroed in on the red knot, what kinds of numbers, with a focus on counting today, what kind of numbers first started to pop up? And how did those numbers change as you developed your, your techniques and your, your methods for, for survey work on the Red Knot? Well, the numbers changed because the populations basically crashed. And hopefully I had nothing to do with that. But in the early years of, of working with shorebirds in Massachusetts here, we often would see numbers on the order of six to 8,000 knots at, at places like Situate and Plymouth and, and also out on the Cape. And historically, people, naturalists like George Mackey, uh, reported numbers of knots and, uh, at Billingsgate and Cape Cod Bay on the order of, quote, clouds darkening the skies, end quote. <laughs> Uh, it's hard to put a number to that, but it clearly was one heck of a lot of birds. Mm -hmm. And so that was early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s. 
So it's been a long downward trajectory for populations of shorebirds like red knots. Gotcha. Uh, while we have you on, could you just share a little bit about what, what exactly is the Western Hemisphere Shorebird Reserve Network? Well, the concept, I won't go into what it is exactly, right. but the concept is to identify these places that are scattered around the hemisphere where shorebirds concentrate uh, at, to fatten up during, during migrations and to try and build protection for those places. In Latin America, setting up reserves very often ends with land that is protected in name, but not in, in action. And so the philosophy behind the Western Hemisphere Shorebird Reserve Network was to try and build protection through education and conservation awareness from the bottom up, rather than from government agencies down to local levels. From We tried to do it from local levels up to government agencies. And it's something of a model now. And it isn't always successful. Sometimes you'll work to try and get something going in an area and it, it fizzles. But in many cases, uh, it thrives. And so the hemisphere is the Western Hemisphere Sherwood Reserve Network is basically a network of these places and the communities that are underlying protection of these places. And so it's grown very nicely, and it's now something over 100 locations in, in uh, North and South America, and uh, it's a very successful project, not because of my doing, but because of all the people that have gotten behind it and put their backs into it as volunteers, almost everybody. So extraordinary project. That's remarkable. Now, tell us quick summary of how, how did you launch and grow the International Shorebird Survey? Writing lots of letters, basically, and trying to, in North America, very often writing to bird clubs and to organize Audubon clubs and things of that nature and trying to enlist help that way. And sometimes directly, you know, hearing about particular people and contacting them. In South America, it was more a matter of, of going to some of the professional meetings in, in South America, in Argentina or Brazil, Venezuela, where have you, and, and meeting ornithologists and naturalists at these conventions and then trying to work down through those people to find volunteers to cover particular sites. Mm -hmm. And that worked pretty well. People in Latin America are generally pretty busy and don't have a lot of spare time to go off and count shorebirds at, at some place that they've adopted. But uh, uh, we got enough coverage to really understand that the same concept of birds concentrating at particular places was just as real in South America as in North America. Amazing. And, and, and the need to track, document, and count equally important in in all locations. Uh, quickly, your thoughts on this excellent article, uh, Bird Observer Magazine, known to birders uh, regionally and, and much farther afield, October 2021. An excellent article by uh, your longtime friend and, and colleague, Lisa Shibley, the importance of counting shorebirds 
Manament's International Shorebird Survey. Uh, your thoughts, your, your just brief thoughts on that article, hot off the press and well worth reading. <laughs> well, Lisa's now the power behind the organization of the ISS, International Shorebird Survey. Mm -hmm. And she's been reaching out in far more effective ways than I ever did, simply because you know, she's a very talented person, has mastery of computer, and the whole world has changed in terms of communication potential. And so that article really is just sort of focusing on building the network and making people aware of, of the kinds of information that it can provide to underlie conservation decision making. And the neat part of all of this is that a lot of governmental agencies have sort of gotten in behind it and are using the information that's coming in. Uh, it's being used for conservation planning in many Latin American countries in Canada, in the U.S., and, and so forth. Spectacular. Uh, quickly, your thoughts on an amazing new book, so relevant to the work you've been doing and we know that our crows that come and roost in Lawrence and other cities across both the U.S. and southern Canada are mostly migratory in these roosts. Uh, Scott Widensall's new book, A World on the Wing, uh, all about migratory birds. Uh, quick thoughts on, on that book. I have to confess that that's next to my bed about uh, three books down, and I haven't read it yet, mm -hmm. but I know Scott. And, and I know his wisdom and he gets it, the importance of these concentration places. But uh, alas, I haven't read it yet, so I'm, I'm not ready to talk about it. <laughs> it's a wonderful <laughs> book and so relevant to really the, the body of your life's work. And uh, for those listening, highly recommended. OK, so let's let's get in with all of that background, which is amazing. Uh, let's get into counting methods. For large number of birds, what would you offer if you provided, if this was a class, how would you start with the basics? If we look at the photo, the image behind you, uh, a good place to start. What are the basics for counting? Not, you know, 10 red knots in a huddle by the water's edge, but for large numbers of birds, we'll, we'll start first in birds like those behind you that are, that are on the ground, and then we'll get into the clouds darkening the sky, the, the, the birds in flight. But what would you lay out as the basics for counting large numbers of, uh, of birds? I taught estimating to wildlife managers uh, around the country. We held workshops all over the U.S. Uh, about shorebird conservation and Estimating was a unit in that, those workshops. And I always started out with each group in an effort to convince people that they really didn't know how to estimate very well. And all of us, all of us, you know, can look at a, a group of birds like those behind me and, and come up with a number. But how do you know that that number is any good? And how do you know that the number that Wayne Peterson came up with versus the number that Brian Harrington came up with, mm -hmm. which, which might be double off from each other. How do you know which one's right mm -hmm. and or closest to right? 
So I always started workshops with estimating exercises, putting pictures up and getting people to estimate the number and write it all down. And, and then after we'd done 20 or 30 of these, we'd go through them and come and I'd ask people to, you know, call out their estimates and so forth. And and then, you know, with that one exercise, it was usually pretty easy to convince people that they really didn't have good estimating skills. <laughs> and so in my mind, that's the first step is admitting to oneself that your estimating abilities maybe aren't as good as you think they are. And then the second step then is trying to hone your uh, estimating abilities. And there are various ways of doing that. Uh, it really is, is through practice. And that's the only tool you, you have for refining your estimating skills. Well, thank goodness for computers. But originally, I did this with beans and, you know, getting people to estimate numbers of beans. And then you sort of have to count through the beans and figure out, you know, what was the right number, blah, blah, blah. And if it was big shorebirds and little shorebirds, we could use beans and rice. But it was it was tedious, mm -hmm. uh, always tedious to practice. But that was the tool we had before we had these wonderful computer programs we have around today. There's one called Wildlife Counts that's an outstanding program. And if one practices on these programs, you can really improve the precision of your estimates, the accuracy of, of your estimates. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that doesn't really stick for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. You have to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I always would use these programs to practice before I went off to do some kind of a survey. Mm -hmm. And I'd try and do that within two months of, let's say, the beginning of the crow aggregation season, uh, maybe two months, start practicing ahead of time, 10 minutes a day, something on that order. Mm -hmm. You can really refine your skills. You can, you can get it down to a point where you know, well, you have a good feeling for what uh, 500 birds looks like or what 50 birds look like. And so I'll take a little square of birds and I'll try and say, well, that's 50. And then I'll block across the rest of the flock by 50s, or in this case, probably by hundreds. I'd recognize that the group of birds closer into me was more densely packed than the group in the rear. And so I would try and make some kind of adjustment in my block. I'd take a group in the rear and try and figure out what's 100 there and then block across and then add it together. But that's fairly simple to do when you have a, a bird's group sitting down in front of you. But if you have a, if you have a big flock winging across the sky, uh, half a mile out or a couple hundred yards out, you basically don't have the luxury of being able to do that. You just have to say, well, that looks like a thousand or that looks like 10,000. Mm -hmm. And that's where this training from programs really comes in, you begin to develop a feeling for what a bird, a group of a thousand birds looks like, mm -hmm. or 500 mm -hmm. or 2000. So it's really practice, 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 practice. 
and refresh your practice periodically. With wildlife counts, I would assume that it's largely based on photography to be able to cross-check the actual numbers. Yes, I'm assuming so also. I guess the bottom line is the numbers are good numbers that they have. <laughs> it, it's not just some, some guy making it up. Uh, they're good numbers, mm-hmm. and, and I've checked them a couple of times on some, some of their images. With birds, large flocks in flight, we've done a lot of work recently on using photography, using both open source software tailored to specifically to crows and the size of the crows and the patterns of the crows. And then also with imaging, hand counting as well. So you've got two methods, and then we involve two or three people to cross-check particularly on the hand counting to see the degree to which the numbers are, are, you know, not necessarily exact, but close. Any other thoughts that you might have for counting with the crows? There's two options, either while they're in a massive, swirling, chaotic set of flight patterns with changing density levels in the 20, 30 minutes that they're approaching the roost. And the other option is that's much more accurate is we're using low light and infrared photography, both lateral and overhead to be able to capture images and then go back and do similar kind of uh, cross-checking. So any further thoughts on, on birds in flight and, and estimating or, or honing or improving counting skills for birds in flight? It sounds like that would be hard to outdo what you just described. And uh, because you've got, you've got the best of both. If you're taking images from above a flock and that flock is layered, you're seeing pretty much the top part of the flock, I imagine. Mm-hmm. But if you have people on the ground who are verifying that this was a globular flock rather than a blanketed level flock, then you have some basis for adjusting what you're, you're getting by both methods, really. Mm-hmm. We tried using aerial photographs on, from airplanes on, on shorebirds. And basically, it turned out that, you know, brown birds on brown mud, it didn't, this is back in the 80s and 90s. So the tools we had are very different than what we have today. Mm-hmm basically brown birds on brown mud and it was the shadows that of the of the birds if we were on a sunny day it was the shadows of the birds that became the the object that we counted uh, because those stood out better you know with various camera technology today and imagery technology and aircraft technology i mean gosh we didn't we didn't have drones or anything like that sing along in an airplane and 100 feet above the ground. <laughs> and, uh, you know, those are tools I've never worked with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sounds wonderful. Sounds very dreamy to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you can appreciate, I'm sure most of your work, Brian, is daytime under relatively uh, high level lighting conditions, even a cloudy day. Uh, with the crows, you have a blackbird. You are looking, counting them typically at dusk and or after dark. And more often than not, while they're in this chaotic set of, of flight patterns with wildly varying densities in the flight stream, 
So it's not a consistent number in the flight stream. And then attempting to do anything after dark, you know, raises the additional challenges. And hence, the infrared camera and illumination gear provides, uh, as you said, imaging opportunities that are dramatically enhanced over what one might expect. And uh, it's a particular challenge. And, and hence why we're coming to you as one of the experts to better understand uh, some of these approaches so we can, we can fine tune and improve the, uh, the counts in Lawrence and elsewhere. Any final thoughts on, on counting methods and improving? I love the notion of practicing and improving and then refreshing as opposed to coasting. Um, any final thoughts on that? If there were, it would be practice, practice, practice. <laughs> that is fabulous. Well, thank you very much, Brian Harrington. We so enjoyed this opportunity to talk with you, learn a bit about your background, your amazing career at Manomet and the lasting legacy of uh, not only the Western uh, Hemisphere Shorebird Reserve Network, but truly the International Shorebird Survey now moving into other hands, uh, making a dramatic impact uh, up and down the coasts of North and South America and protecting on a conservation level, many birds that might be faced with a very different future had it not been with your visionary work uh, done in advance, others can take it. And the sign of any good leader, Brian, is when you place it in the hands of somebody who takes off and starts doing better things than you did. <laughs> you, you, know, you know your choice was a good one. That's what we all want, I hope, <laughs> is things to carry on and improve. Amen to that. Well, again, many, many thanks. We appreciate you joining us. Be well and stay safe. Okay. Thanks. You too. That's all for this episode of The Crow Patrol. Subscribe to The Crow Patrol in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your own favorite podcast app so you don't miss our next episode. You can find recent postings, photos, and videos of winter crow roosts, read the latest articles and research, and contact us at wintercrowroost.com. I'm Craig Gibson. Thanks for listening.